Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the war on children as bombs fall on Gaza, where half the population is under 18, and as every kibbutz baby for Hamas is an oppressor, and every Palestinian baby for Netanyahu and his cohorts is a future terrorist, we'll search for some way to stop the killing and speak with Amy Wilentz. An award-winning writer, her books include The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier, and The Rainy Season, Haiti Then and Now. Awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in General Nonfiction in 2020, she is the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, a long-time contributing editor at The Nation, and teaches in the literary journalism program at the University of California at Irvine. And she's the author of Martyr's Crossing, a novel about the Oslo peace process in Jerusalem in the mid-1990s. And we'll discuss her article at The Nation. In Gaza, they don't even bother to call it peace. Then we'll look further in a search for humanity and compassion amid the killing and speak with Dr. Sayed Atshan, a professor of anthropology and chair of the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at Swarthmore College. His areas of research include contemporary Palestinian society and politics, global LGBTQ social movements, and Christian minorities in the Middle East. He's the author of Queer Palestine and The Empire of Critique, and is the co-author of The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians. His forthcoming book is Paradoxes of Humanitarianism, The Social Life of Aid in the Palestinian Territories, and we will discuss his article at Truthout, I Wish Americans Could See the Humanity of Palestinians as They Do with Israelis. Then finally we'll examine the plea deal Sidney Powell made with the Fulton County Prosecutor in Georgia in which the Kraken was released on probation and will testify against Trump and 16 of his cohorts in the racketeering case brought by D.A. Fannie Willis. Joining us is David Graham, a staff writer at The Atlantic where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National, and we'll discuss his latest article at The Atlantic, what Sidney Powell's deal could mean for the Fulton County case against Trump. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Amy Wilentz, who's an award-winning writer whose books include The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier, and The Rainy Season, Haiti Then and Now. Awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in general nonfiction in 2020, she is the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, a long-time contributing editor at The Nation, and teaches in the literary journalism program at the University of California at Irvine. And she's the author of Martyr's Crossing, a novel about the Oslo peace process in Jerusalem and in the mid-1990s, and she has an article at The Nation in Gaza, they don't even bother to call it peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amy Willens. Thanks so much, Ian. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And as your article mentions, uh, President Biden has cautioned Israel not to operate within the rules of war, whatever they are. And he also warned not to be consumed by vengeance and did make a comparison between what happened here in the United States because people are making connections saying that what happened in Israel was Israel's 9-11 and Biden cautioned again about 9-11 and the overreaction and the mentioned in passing that we made some mistakes. So do you see Israel making mistakes at this moment? Well, I think whenever there's a strike like 9-11 or uh, the, um, I'm not sure what you call it, the incursion of the Gazans, uh, the Gazan uh, Hamas militants into the surrounding Israeli area and the ensuing violence, I think um, nations tend to respond uh, with a bellicose, uh, vengeful thrust. And that's what Biden was talking about. He was talking about, although he didn't mention it by name, the attack by the U.S. against Iraq. And I do believe that Israel, in the hands of a weak statesman, Netanyahu, who likes to appear hyper-masculine, um, is, Israel is pushing forward with, um, I don't know if you can call it an overreaction, but an intemperate and not very well-considered violent reaction to the attacks. But could you make the case that the U.S. response for George W. Bush and company's response to 9-11, in a sense, we were taking bin Laden's bait? And exactly. Do you think, exactly. Do you think it's happening now with the Israelis? Because I can't imagine what the strategy of right. Hamas was other than to bait the Israelis into an, into an overreaction. Well, I think there, it's a little bit more complicated than that just knowing how these operations work, I think they thought, um, we'll do a really violent thing. It will, of course, bring the Israelis uh, into an act of war against Gaza. But it won't be too bad because we'll be holding 200 hostages. So they know that in the past they've held hostages and um, they've been able to negotiate about those hostages. And I think they may have been surprised that holding 200, what they thought were all Israelis, um, wouldn't temper somewhat the reaction. But, but they wanted to bring Israel into this kind of position. There can be no doubt. Or they were willing to to attract the military might of, of Israel. So from what I've learned from military strategists in Israel and, and, what, and the statements of the IDF, it seems as though the strategy here on the part of the Israelis is to, or the determination, I guess is a better way to put it, is to just simply kill all of the Hamas fighters, and that may be 60,000, and just eliminate that government and then hand over that territory to the UN and to uh, any other Arab partner that would uh, help in reconstructing it and basically wash their hands of the whole thing. Do you see that as a realistic strategy? I don't see. I don't think it's sixty thousand, and um, I don't see how you kill sixty thousand without killing another uh, collateral sixty thousand, and that's not an acceptable figure. They're already killing innocent civilians who have absolutely nothing to do with Hamas. Um, 
So, no, I don't think the the first goal is intelligent. I also believe, from having watched uh, militant groups for a long time, under fire, etc., you kill, you know, chop off the head and the branches grow anyway. So people spring back when they, especially when they continue under the same oppressive uh, situation that created something like Hamas in the first place. Um, so there are always going to be uh, militant groups violently opposed to Israeli dominance um, if if Israel continues its policies. And I don't know that, you know, the UN is going to want to rush to the rescue of the what is a failed Israeli strategy for uh, fixing itself. It has to be a political um, understanding with the Palestinians unless the Israelis want to wipe the Palestinians off the face of the earth. And I would caution them to reconsider on that because the world has not smiled on that kind of behavior, genocidal behavior. But the end game, at least as far as one can tell, of the Israeli right, which is now, of course, even further to the right with this new government yes. of, uh, ben- yes. of Benjamin Netanyahu, their end game with the Palestinians has always appeared, since they know really they really won't state exactly what their goal is, but it does seem to be sort of based upon this idea that you know they'll go away somehow. The Palestinians. Well, people. I call it I call it the no state solution. So right. there was the two state solution. There has now been recently everybody sort of gathering under this idea that there could be a one-state solution while Israel still existed. That was never going to happen. So now it's the no-state solution. And the hope is that they'll either all disappear or somehow the UN, which has been taking care of the Gazans for a long time, uh, and the Palestinians in various refugee camps, will continue that paternal uh help so it's backfiring and it will backfire and whether or not they can kill 60,000 or even 30,000 is the other figure I've heard in terms of Hamas uh, fighters it seems as if this idea of doing an end run around the Palestinians through the Abraham Accords and making a deal with Saudi Arabia and other Arab states and essentially as of recently um the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was saying how great it yeah. is that we don't have to worry about uh, the Middle East anymore. I mean, how <laughs> delusional is that? Well, and and Hamas hears your cry, you know. You say mm. something like that, they're listening. They're not, they're not dead yet. And the other thing about, you know, killing 60,000 Hamas militants, well, I mean, at a certain point, you know, to me, go over 1,000 and you're, you're killing Palestinian civilians. You can call them Hamas. You can call them whatever. They may support Hamas. Um, what doc- documentation are you going to give for 60,000 people? They Israeli demanded that uh, 1.1 million people flee North Gaza so they can uh, you know, chase down the Hamas militants. Supposedly, that's the goal. But, of course, what, if I were in Hamas, I'd just go with the 1.1 million. You know, take me, Mom. Let me get in your flatbed truck and we'll leave together. I, I just don't understand how they're going to assassinate 60,000 people or 30,000 people or even, indeed, 5,000 people in any targeted way. So your article at The Nation, Amy Wilentz, 
in Gaza, they don't even bother to call it peace. You mentioned that to Hamas, every kibbutz baby is an oppressor. And for Bibi Netanyahu and his cohorts, every Palestinian baby is a future terrorist. And you were looking into the eyes of uh, a baby next to you at a table here in sunny California, uh, an outdoor restaurant. And I take it, you starting the article out with that is a way to express the enormous difference between our privileged life here and looking at at a beautiful child and then suddenly putting yourself in the context of what it would be like to be in Gaza today. And it raises the question of, can we start seeing Palestinians with the same compassion and humanity that we we see Israelis? Because our government is right 100% behind Israel at this point. And obviously right. you're, you're troubled by the fact that your tax dollars paying for bombs that are raining down on Palestinian civilians. Yes, but that little girl sitting next to my table was a stand-in for me for the uh, children on the kibbutzim who were slaughtered, uh, you know, in hand-to-hand combat, basically, Mm -hmm. babies against militants. So she was my Israeli baby, and then the little dog at her table, her family dog, whom I described, was the stand-in for the little dog of the Palestinian family in Amira Haas's wonderful Haaretz uh, transcript of a phone call she had with someone she knows in Gaza as the bombs were coming down and uh, a woman who had a dog in the apartment. There were like 50 people in this one one house where all the apartment buildings had been bombed around the neighborhood and everybody had huddled in the one remaining house. And this woman who had a small dog who hadn't eaten in four days because of the bombs being too scary. She was carrying this little dog around. So I put the little Israeli baby and the little Palestinian dog together. And, you know, I was commenting again, as you said, on our privilege of sitting in a Japanese restaurant in sunny California as all of this was happening now to the Gazans and previously to the Israelis. So what, to what extent is cable news at least, uh, I don't know what percentage of the American people are watching it, but Bringing all of this stuff right into your living room, is there is there a chance that we will have the kind of moral awakening that would suggest that we start seeing Israelis and Palestinians with equal humanity and compassion? I tend to think about um, how Susan Sontag was uh, derided and attacked when she suggested that the hatred um, shown uh, by the, um, let's say, the Muslim world against America um, on 9-11 was uh, historical and had historic roots. And one could think about it that way. I think about that now because I think... um, the same opportunity that this opens up this terrible, terrible situation, this very sad season um, will be somehow destroyed by vengeful cruelty and uh, death and blood instead of having people like grownups stand back and say, okay, we suffered a terrible blow. Now we've inflicted a terrible blow. Now let's stop 
and consider what the future could hold, as opposed to redoing yet again the same stuff, which works to many um, many actors in the situation. It works to many actors' benefit, but not to the benefit of the citizens on the ground. And just in closing, uh, you have the example of the 2006 um, retaliation against uh, Hezbollah in the north, where much of, uh, of Beirut was destroyed, and yet it did not destroy Hamas. It Hezbollah. did not destroy Hezbollah. So. Right. So don't do it again. But you know, this this thing seems to go on endlessly. Well, Amy Lorenz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Amy Mullens, who's an award-winning writer whose books include The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier, and The Rainy Season, Haiti Then and Now. She was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in General Nonfiction in 2020 and is the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. And she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at the University of California at Irvine. And she's the author of Martyr's Crossing, a novel about the Oslo peace process in Jerusalem in the mid-1990s. And she has an article at The Nation, In Gaza, They Don't Even Bother to Call It Peace. We're going to take a restation break and back looking further in a search for humanity and compassion amid the killing in Gaza. When the president talks to God, do they drink near beer and go play golf? While they pick which countries to invade, which Muslim souls still can be saved? I guess God just calls a spade a spade when the president talks to God. When the president talks to God. Does he ever think that maybe he's not? That that voice is just inside his head? When he needs- Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Syed Atshan, who is a professor of anthropology and chair of the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at Swarthmore College. His area of research includes contemporary Palestinian society and politics, global LGBTQ social movements, and Christian minorities in the Middle East. He's the author of Queer Palestine and The Empire of Critique, and is a co-author of The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians. And his forthcoming book is Paradoxes of Humanitarianism, The Social Life and Aid in the Palestinian Territories. And he has an article at Truthout, I Wish Americans Could See the Humanity of Palestinians as They Do with Israelis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Saeed Achan. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Saeed. And uh, why not start by answering the question that you're article poses. I wish Americans could see the humanity of Palestinians as they do with Israelis. So why do you think this is so? Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for reading that article and for referencing it now. It was a very short article that uh, Truth Out commissioned for me to write. And as I mentioned in the title and as I mentioned in the piece, it is it's very beautiful that so many Americans have so much empathy and compassion for the Israeli people. And what I what I say is that I hope and wish to see the same level of compassion and empathy extended to the Palestinian people as well. Uh, no, because our all of our lives are equal in value and in worth and in dignity. And ultimately we hope that Palestinians and Israelis will be able to live together with peace and security for all in a shared land. 
Well, the sad part, as far as I can see, Sayed, is that there's going to be more and more uh, Palestinian casualties as this war escalates, and the, the, the ground invasion hasn't begun yet, and that's bound to cause more casualties. So, in a sad kind of way, it seems that the more the American people and the and the rest of the world see the suffering of the Palestinians, the more that they are going to focus on the historical injustice that has led to this situation. Yeah, I think that's one way to see it and one way to put it. Um, I, I do, I do want to caution us not to subscribe to the narrative that it's inevitable for there to be such, you know, dramatic uh, bloodshed uh, as well as such a you know, devastating loss of Palestinian life, and that that necessarily needs to continue. Uh, you have efforts at the Security Council to, you know, call for a humanitarian ceasefire, which unfortunately the United States vetoed. The U.S. was the only country to block this Security Council resolution. Um, a senior State Department official just submitted his resignation, protesting the warmongering and the, the, the lack of efforts to de-escalate the conflict in the U.S., the State Department had a memo circulated calling on diplomats not to use the language of ceasefire or de-escalation. But meanwhile, civil society and on a grassroots level in the U.S. and people all over the world are calling for precisely that, ceasefire and de-escalation. Just yesterday in D.C., thousands of Americans from all walks of life but majority Jewish Americans who are critical of the Israeli occupation, calling for a ceasefire. Um, hundreds of them were arrested uh, in D.C. protesting the U.S. government's policy to support, you know, blindly the U.S. Uh, the U.S. blind support for Israeli violence in Gaza that's happening as we speak. So I hope that more and more of us can challenge the status quo and can call for uh, an end to the bloodshed as soon as possible. Well, if there was a strategy behind this on the part of Hamas, um, a lot of analysts have suggested it's because of the Abraham Accords and the idea that Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and other Arab states would make a deal that it would essentially ignore the Palestinians. I don't see that happening anymore. I think if, in, in, no matter what the outcome will be, I think the Palestinian situation is, is back in the global consciousness, albeit a terrible human cost. Yes, I think what motivated Hamas uh, to launch their attacks on uh, October 7th are probably, you know, very complex and there are many, many different factors that motivated them. I'm not sure that one of the most salient factors from their point of view was to sabotage the Abraham Accords vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Saudi Arabia. I think there are probably more pressing and salient uh, motivations that motivated them. But what we saw on October 7th was absolutely horrific and constitutes massacres and war crimes. And I unequivocally, uh, you know, I'm opposed to, to that and to Hamas and to what they did. They don't speak for Palestinian society. They don't represent the vast majority of Palestinians. Uh, so what they did is absolutely heartbreaking and my heart goes out to all the Israeli victims and their loved ones. But what Hamas did does not justify in any way the, the, the war crimes that 
Israel is now carrying out uh, in the Gaza Strip and the violence that's now being unleashed on Palestinians in the West Bank and the surveillance and policing that's happening against Palestinians in Israel proper, as well as against Israelis who are calling for an end to the war and for a ceasefire and coexistence. This is the most far-right government in Israel's history, and it has individuals in the Israeli government who not only have you know, fascistic tendencies, unfortunately, but also are openly inciting genocide. So it's it's really, really devastating that the Israeli government is currently captured by such an extremist political agenda. Well, at this moment, of course, the Israeli government is a, is a, a unity government or whatever they want to describe it. So but there's no question that they're all in on a determination to wipe out Hamas. They've said as much, and that seems to be their military strategy. And I don't know, and I've tried to talk to a few analysts about this, whether or not it's possible for the Israelis to do what they apparently intend to do, which is to wipe out Hamas, which is, could be up to 60,000 fighters, wipe out the government, and then hand over Gaza to the UN and to whatever Arab states could uh, help reconstruct it. Do you think, given that possibility, and of course the United States is all in behind Israel, there's no daylight there, except that Biden is calling for humanitarian aid and and for a corridor to open up the Egyptian rougher crossing where a lot of aid is sitting there waiting to enter Gaza. So let's start with what appears to be the Israeli military strategy. Is there any way in the world that such a strategy could work? I think we're trying to determine what on earth the Israeli military strategy is. I think it's one thing to say that it's to wipe out Hamas, but unfortunately, all of their um, declarations as well as their actions on the ground demonstrate that they are out for vengeance, they're out for collective punishment, and they're out for a destruction of Gaza writ large. This is, so this is not just a destruction of Hamas that they seem to be seeking. This is a, a complete, utter devastation of the entire social fabric and infrastructure of Palestinian life in Gaza more generally and more broadly. I mean, the entire, some, it's now we're at at least 45 Palestinian families in the Gaza Strip have been completely killed. Um, literally, at least 45 families in Gaza, generations of families completely wiped out. Uh, half the population are children. We've exceeded a thousand. Palestinian children in Gaza killed since October 7th. Most of the population are refugees. You're seeing entire buildings and towers, predominantly residential buildings, flatten. You're seeing the deliberate targeting of hospitals across the Gaza Strip. You also see the deliberate targeting of journalists. And you see the cutting, Israel's cutting of water, of power, of access to medicine, food, I mean, complete devastation. You have 50,000 Palestinian women who are pregnant in Gaza, who are about to give birth. Um, you have, you know, babies in incubators. The, the hospitals don't have power for the incubators. So you have the just devastation of people's lives. And this is an unbelievably cruel uh, strategy, if it is a strategy. And, and like I said, it is, um, unfortunately, there are, individuals calling for genocide 
So this and and can you defeat Hamas through bombs? You know, I I don't think that you can defeat an ideology and ideas by bombing people. You fight ideas with ideas, and you improve the material realities of people's lives, and you end the the core of this conflict and crisis, which is the Israeli military occupation and control over Palestinian lives. The fact that Israel can just cut off people, millions of people's access to basic, basic human needs shows you the power imbalance and shows you that this is not sustainable. Israel cannot continue its occupation forever. So, Sayed, you mentioned a little while ago that uh, not all Palestinians support Hamas. So, in effect, you're arguing that what is Israel's doing now is actually driving people more into having sympathy for Hamas as opposed to blaming them for their plight. So what strategy is there to distinguish the Palestinian people from this government? Some people have described it as an Islamofascist government. Certainly, when you talk about the capture of the Israeli government by the right-wing religious nationalists, that's also a description of Hamas as well. And LGBTQ rights, as you have written about, is the last thing that they have any respect for Hamas. So is there any practical way, not at this point, I guess, because it's hideous what's happening, to make this distinction? And as long as the Israelis don't make that distinction, then your arguments that they're in a blind rage and in a genocidal mood, then that becomes more apparent. Yeah, I mean, you know, Hamas is a government and it's not a state. You know, it's basically, the you know, in the West Bank, which is under Israeli military occupation, there's Fatah or the Palestinian Authority that is the, quote, governing body. But they have very, very limited authority uh, because Israel is the ultimate sovereign. And in the Gaza Strip, Hamas is like the governing authority, but it actually has very limited authority. Gaza is basically an Israeli open air prison. Israel controls the water, the electricity, it controls the population registry, the currency, the flow of goods in and out. Israel actually conducts caloric calculations as to how many calories will be allowed into the Gaza Strip to keep the population alive, but just you know on the brink of survival. This has been the status quo for many years now. So the occupied territories, it's been decades of life under Israeli sovereignty and Israeli military control. I'm 39 years old. My entire life, my homeland has been under military occupation. So this is, you know, like I said, the heart of the matter. This is the root of the crisis. And Israel actually, you know, in the 1980s, wanted Hamas to emerge as a religious fundamentalist organization within Palestinian society with a typical colonial divide and conquer rule strategy because the PLO was a secular organization uniting Palestinian society and Israel wanted to see Palestinian society fractured politically, geographically. And that's been the strategy since then. And there are many, many, you know, credible reports that Netanyahu on a number of occasions has said that Hamas is actually convenient for Israel in order to undermine the two-state solution, in order to frame this as a struggle, you know, against Hamas, rather than as a struggle for a people living under apartheid and who seek 
self-determination and who have inalienable rights according to international law. So I think if we address the root of the matter, which is the fact that the vast majority of Palestinians are stateless and have no form of citizenship and are denied basic socioeconomic and civic and political rights, a lot of the alternatives to Hamas can really emerge. But Israel has systematically also undermined and 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 tried to destroy any alternatives, including the secular, you know, Fatah who, who support negotiations and diplomacy and have disavowed violence, etc. Israel has done everything it can to actually undermine them and in many ways to, in a sense, as a result, bolster Hamas. And so I think that the strategy is actually counterintuitive and counterproductive. Sure. Well, I think, though, in terms of adult supervision, which is supposedly the role that the United States has played here, if you go back to the 2006 elections, it seems to me that that was a critical moment. And this was under George, George W. Bush, Condoleezza Rice being the National Security Council advisor. She was completely blindsided by the Hamas victory. And anybody that knew anything about the territories and had any boots on the ground there would have told you that if you have an election where the Palestinian people have to vote, choose between the PLO, Fatah and Hamas, it's like a choice between the, the mafia and the Salvation Army. Hamas was, you know, trying to, you know, build hospitals and take care of people and the PLO uh, it was very corrupt, and they ran, uh, had a patronage system where they ran so many different, so many candidates for each electorate. Whereas at Hamas was much more strategic. They just put one, uh, put up one candidate per electorate and, and backed that. So the PLO sort of divided and, and conquered itself, and therefore Hamas won the elections. And it seemed like the most outrageous form of American arrogance and neglect on the part of Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush not to know what the hell was happening on the ground there. And then, then you have to add to that that the Israeli peace movement was cut off at the pass by the assassination of Isaac Rabin, which to this day, his widow, Leah, blames Netanyahu for her husband's death. So aren't these factors also at play here? Well, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, the United States, which is the world's superpower, unfortunately, has never been a neutral broker in this conflict. You know, the U.S. considers Israel its, quote, special ally, and Israel's the largest recipient of U.S. aid in the world. On top of the billions that the U.S. gives Israel, the U.S. just pledged $2 billion additional dollars, and now there's a massive package of additional um, U.S. support, for military support, billions and billions to Israel. This is at a time when the U.S. government can't even provide, you know, social services to its own population and in which there's a, you know, financial crisis in this country as well. And meanwhile, the U.S. is, you know, funding the Israeli military industrial complex in many, many ways. So Palestinians have never, ever in the context of negotiations, which I was a part of, Palestinian-Israeli negotiations, the U.S. seat at the table was never perceived as neutral in any way. In fact, the U.S. always acted as Israel's lawyer, in a sense, and, and a form of bully, you know, trying to impose solutions on Palestinians that were completely unacceptable and completely unfair, you know, to be frank. And so when it comes to Palestinian 
elections, which happened, you know, nearly, you know, 20 years ago now, and there haven't been elections ever since, the, those, why people voted for Hamas and why Hamas resonated with them, yeah, those, that population was very heterogeneous. They, like you said, you know, some of them were disenchanted or disillusioned with Fatah, which was the only other alternative at the time, given the two major political parties. And because of Hamas's charities and social service provision that they provided, although that was its own patronage network in a way, some people resonated with Hamas's religious ideology. Some people supported the idea of, quote, armed resistance and felt that this negotiations process with the U.S. was not yielding any results and was actually making things worse for Palestinians, etc. But I would suspect that a lot of folks who voted for Hamas then probably would take back their vote now if they could. But unfortunately, Israel's responses in many ways are bolstering Hamas even further. So it's it's having the opposite effect. Uh, but what, what we really need is, you know, a democratic political sphere in Palestinian society half of Gaza's population, the children weren't even alive when those elections took place. So we have to actually create a political landscape in Palestine where we can enfranchise the voices of youth, of women, of LGBTQ people, of people from all walks of life. But we're not going to be able to do that as long as we remain under the thumb of Israel and as long as we remain under Israeli military occupation. So to have the, those internal, you know, uh, of freedom uh, mechanisms and pluralism within our society that's it's we, we must also break free of the shackles of Israeli occupation so I look forward to that day and and where many of us are trying to build civil society and build on a grassroots level so that we can achieve that well just in closing it would seem though that at the United States in terms of adult supervision has got to recognize that the right-wing Israeli project led by Netanyahu, who has been the wrecking crew from going back to the assassination of Rabin, of any efforts of a two-state solution. They have to be called out, and they can't get away with the fact that they've never stated what their end game is with Palestine. And the end game, as far as anybody can see, is that they simply want the Palestinians to go away. And that's not going to happen. So don't you think at a fundamental level, they have to be called out? Yes, thank you. And early on, it was clear that the Israeli government was hoping that they could basically transfer and ethnically cleanse the Palestinian population in Gaza and move them to the Sinai Desert in Egypt. And the Egypt made it very, very clear that they will not allow that to happen. But, but initially, the indications were that that's what Israel was hoping to do. It was, you know, it, it demanded that 1.1 million Palestinians in the north of Gaza move to the south of Gaza and then to move the population from the south of Gaza in to cross into the Sinai, into Egypt. And we know, given 75 years of Palestinian displacement, dispossession from Israel, that once that happens, you can never go back. So it's been 75 years of Israel's strategy of depopulating Palestinian villages, driving Palestinians off their ancestral lands, and building Israeli settlements and towns instead. This has been their goal for 75 years, and it's clear to anyone paying attention. But there is more and more resistance to that within Palestine, Israel, within the United States, within Europe, 
more and more people are speaking truth to power and saying enough is enough, this has to stop. Well, Dr. Syed Ashan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Syed Achan, who is a professor of anthropology and chair of the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at Swarthmore College. His areas of research include contemporary Palestinian society and politics, global LGBTQ social movements, and Christian minorities in the Middle East. And he's the author of Queer Palestine and The Empire of Critique, and the co-author of The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians. And his forthcoming book is Paradoxes of Humanitarianism, The Social Life of Aid in the Palestinian Territories, and he has an article at Truth Out, I wish Americans could see the humanity of Palestinians as they do with Israelis. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the plea deal Sidney Plow made with the Fulton County Prosecutor in Georgia, in which the Kraken was released on probation and will testify against Trump and 16 of his cohorts. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Graham, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National. And his latest article at The Atlantic is What Sidney Powell's Deal Could Mean for the Fulton County Case Against Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Graham. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the subtitle to your article is, I think there are a lot of people who are in trouble more than they were before. And your article begins, the Kraken has been released on on probation. Um, so just to touch on what, just to read from your article, that the deal that she struck is that she recorded a proffer offer with prosecutors that described the crimes that she had agreed to testify and she's agreed to testify in future cases, which, of course, is really damaging for Donald Trump and the 16 other co-conspirators in this racketeering case. And she also wrote an apology letter to citizens of Georgia and agreed to pay almost $9,000 in fines. Yet legal experts you talked to said this is a good deal. So why is it a good deal? It's a good deal for her because she um, was so clearly implicated in these things. You know, we know we know from what's public that she was heavily involved in the effort to overturn the election. And we know she was heavily involved in particular in this breach of election equipment in Coffee County, Georgia. And so for someone who was so closely involved in all of this and, and you know, sort of even without seeing a court proceeding, you know, we can see this to get off with such a good deal is a good sign for her. You know, she won't have to serve any prison time. Um, assuming she completes all the terms of her deal, because she's a first-time offender, it will be wiped from her record. Um, and so, and, you know, she's getting off with a again almost nine thousand dollars in fines and restitution, but generally doesn't have a whole lot uh, that she has to do here. So, I think she's getting off, and that's a sign that um, she has something, or she can, she can 
she can offer something to prosecutors that they think will be valuable for their case. Well, that's certainly the implication, isn't it, David? That that's how plea deals operate, isn't it? You spill the beans and testify against your cohorts, and we'll let you off lightly. And so, let's talk about how damaging her testimony could be. Yeah, I mean, I think what's most interesting um, about her is that she seems to provide a nexus to a lot of people in the case. <clears throat> so, you know, we believe, for example, that she was in close touch with Jeff Clark, who was, um, people may remember, the Justice Department lawyer who tried to launch an internal coup in the Justice Department, was sending letters to um, state legislatures telling them they could overturn the election and, and involved in a lot of these, uh, a lot of chicanery here and there. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like maybe her testimony would sort of directly show how he was involved. Uh, and since he's one of the bigger names in the case, that might be the place where she is most valuable to prosecutors. Well, the trial was supposed to begin tomorrow, right? So now That's she's right. been severed from Kenneth Chesborough, right? He was, so his trial will go ahead tomorrow. Correct. Dr- tr- jury selection starts for him on Tuesday. And he was reportedly offered a plea deal also, but rejected it. So her pulling out, how much jeopardy has it put him in? I mean, there's already been one deal made, right, with the bail bondsman. So what right. what do you think the prosecutors are, are building? Clearly, they're building a case, and it could be incredibly strengthened by Sidney Powell turning state's evidence, surely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in his case, too. He uh, I think it cuts two ways for him. He wanted to be severed from her from the start. You know, his lawyers said these are the two the only two people who asked for a speedy trial. So they wanted a quicker trial. And so the judge said, great, we'll try these two people together. And his lawyers immediately protested. And they said, you know, he doesn't know her. They haven't had any dealings. They've never communicated. Um, So they're both part of this broader scheme to steal the election that Bonnie Willis has uh, alleged. Um, but it doesn't seem like they were closely involved. I think her d- going away from this particular trial um, may make things easier for prosecutors, too, because now they don't have to concentrate both on her sort of low-level, um, really kind of amateurish schemes here to infiltrate Coffee County voting systems. And they can focus more directly on him and what he was doing or what he's alleged to have done, which was to engineer this fake elector scheme at a much higher level than what she was working on. So what about Jeff Clark, the, the obscure uh, Justice Department official in charge of the in the environmental section who offered himself up as a replacement to the series of people that Trump had fired as attorney generals? Um, this, I mean, he's, he's clearly vulnerable in the, the other cases, uh, the, particularly the Jack Smith case before Judge Chutkin. So why do you think he's he's just as vulnerable here in Atlanta? Because uh, obviously, you know, as I say, I think we all recall the testimony in the January 6th hearings uh, from a couple of the White House lawyers, Cipollone and uh, and Hirschman, where they recounted the, the, the crazy stuff that Jeff Clark was saying in these insane meetings that they were having plotting to overturn the results of the elections and stop the count. I think it was Hirschman who said, you better get a good lawyer. So is it, are we at that point where Jeff Clark really needs a good lawyer? I imagine he's got one, but how good is he? 
<laughs> and how good does he right. need to be? <laughs> we'll get the test. Yeah, I mean, I think his real danger here is this. He has sort of argued that, you know, first of all, that nothing he did was illegal. But also he's portrayed himself as somebody who was sitting in the Justice Department writing letters full of legal advice to, you know, legislatures. And he can say, I might have been wrong about the law, but I was I was offering legal advice. I was doing something that was legal. Um, and what Powell has the potential to do is place him in the middle of this plot and in the middle of a really specifically illegal thing, you know, sort of indisputably illegal, which was this breach of voting machines and attempt to access the data from the voting machines in Coffee County. So, for example, Bonnie Willis alleges in her indictment that Clark had a long phone call with Scott Hall, who's this Atlanta bail bondsman, who already pleaded guilty. Uh, and we know that um, Sidney Powell was heavily involved in the, the conspiracy, as she pleaded today, in the conspiracy to breach these voting machines. So now we have two potential witnesses who can put Jeff Clark closely involved in this indisputably illegal plot. And I think that's why he is in trouble because of this plea deal today. And he's in trouble irrespective of how much trouble he's in in terms of Jack Smith's prosecution before Judge Chutkin. Right, exactly. He's got lots of trouble on lots of fronts. <laughs> so what then is the possibility since this seems like a big win for Fannie Willis. She's not out of the woods in the sense that the legislature in in uh, Georgia has passed laws that could shut her down. Uh, I believe the governor does not want to do that, but there's been some rumblings from some of the Republicans in the Georgia State Senate. Is it possible that just as Fannie Willis is really starting to put together a strong case and and the wall of resistance amongst Trump and the 16 others in this racketeering charge seems to be cracking visibly. What's your sense of whether or not this Georgia state legislature could try and do an end run around this and shut it down? It's really hard to tell. I mean, I think it's an important question and a little bit difficult one. As you said, the governor has said he opposes anything. And it's not clear how wide the support for this move actually would be in the legislature it's not clear like what the law actually allows too. the law is written to allow the legislature to go after prosecutors who aren't prosecuting cases that the legislature thinks they should be i think in particular things like abortion cases which is a you know a pretty serious overreach into what prosecutors are typically allowed to do but here they would be accusing her of prosecuting something they shouldn't prosecute and it's not clear that would be legal under the law I think there's enough questions here that if the legislature tries to act, um, we would probably be in for some lengthy litigation and court cases about that as well, um, which I'm sure would be a distraction, but I'm, I'm not sure it would be resolved anytime soon. So then how long do you think, though, David, before this reaches Trump, who's at the pinnacle of this uh, RICO case? You know, as we've mentioned, the, the foundation is cracking, right? So how long before it reaches Trump in terms of jeopardy? Well, I, you know, I think even without more people doing this, he's already got fairly serious jeopardy. Um, we don't know what evidence the grand jury gathered and, and what the prosecutors have in hand. We know it's public. And we know, for example, we have the phone call recording uh, of him um, asking for 11,000 votes uh, from the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Um, and so that goes a long way. And I think then the other question is, you know, 
both what they what the prosecutors already have, but also what effect this deal might have on some of the people in this case. Because I think if you're one of the non, you know, the defendants in the case who's not Trump or Giuliani or Mark Meadows or John Eastman, you're looking at this and saying, well, Sidney Powell has taken a plea. Um, uh, she clearly thought she couldn't be the evidence, but she also got a fairly favorable deal. Do I want to take my chances at a trial um, on behalf of Trump and Rudy and whoever else? Um, or is it, does it behoove me to cooperate with the prosecution uh, and, and sort of get, try to get past this? And I think that's what the prosecution is hoping to do with this deal, partly, is to encourage other members of the, um, of the alleged racket to just get in line and, and make it easier and get, make things quicker to get to Trump. It seems like they're trying to move from the bottom up. And you see that with, you know, you see that with Scott Hall and you see that with Powell. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw it with some of the other people who are involved in this Coffee County scheme, too. Now that they've seen that two players have pleaded out, there's not a whole lot of benefit to them to trying to fight this. Um, and so they may want to go, too. But she had to pay $9,000, right? She's got a fine here. I don't think a lot of these people have much money, do they? I mean, we're not talking about white shoe lawyers top of their game. I mean, these were scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of legal acumen, right? And we know that Rudy Giuliani has, has got bills up the kazoo, although I think Trump actually, didn't Trump do a fundraiser for him recently? He did, although I'm not sure how much of that it cuts into because the size of Giuliani's alleged bills is just so large. Right. So how much do you think that's a, that's a factor in all of this, that these people are, are vulnerable to, you know, bankruptcy or whatever? Yeah, I think it's a factor. I, you know, I think that could cut two ways, too. The cost of going through a trial, um, racking up legal hours, is going to be high. Um, and the cost of being convicted could be very high, too, if you go through a trial and end up being convicted. So even with... Uh, with these sort of four-figure numbers, it may be a better deal to them than trying to go through. Right. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, David, how would you put this in the broader context? I mean, it's almost like a race to who's going to nail Trump first, and there's so many different lawsuits here. There's the one we're talking about in Atlanta. There's the New York Attorney General's case where Trump's been showing up regular basis essentially to try and distract the press coverage onto him away from what is actually being <laughs> away from the actual testimony that's happening inside the courthouse uh, i guess that's a critique on on the press in a way and then of course you've got judge chutkin now in washington dc placing a gag order on him which is probably not going to work given who he is and the case down there in Florida on the Mar-a-Lago documents, that's the judge on that is actually delaying it further, raising questions of her bias towards Trump. So a quick overview, if you would, in the last minute here. Yeah, I mean, it's a dizzying array of cases. I think the question to watch in terms of the, the sort of race to be first is when we get a trial date for the rest of these defendants uh, in Fulton County. And I, I don't believe we've gotten that yet. The expectation is it would be sometime in 2024. So we'll want to see how long Schiffro's trial takes and, and where that goes. And I think that will give an indication of what prosecutors have and how fast they can move on to another trial. And that will tell us whether we're going to get somewhere before March 2024 when uh, Judge Chutkin has filed the, or has uh, scheduled the start of cases 
um, or whether that's going to come later on. Um, it's going to be a busy spring for Trump either way. And we didn't even mention uh, Stormy Daniels. So <laughs> I thank you for joining us here today, <laughs> David. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David Graham, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National. And his latest article at The Atlantic is What Sidney Powell's Deal Could Mean for the Fulton County Case Against Trump. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.